Hello, and welcome to The Accidental Curator. Um, my name is George Bathgate, and I'm coming to you from Kitsilino, Vancouver today. Um, this is May the 27th. It's a Friday, and it's strangely beautiful outside. Uh, we've had one of the longest, coldest, grayest, rainiest uh, springs on record, I think. It's just been forever and coming, and we're all eagerly awaiting sunshine. Um, but it's here today, so that's a great thing. Um, yeah, it's been a couple of months since I created a podcast. Um, I think the last one was in March. That was episode 10. This is episode 11. And um, yeah, I've just been a little slow getting these things out the, out the door. And uh, that's just uh, for various reasons. I've been very, very busy. And as you probably know, if you follow this podcast, I do have a little art gallery cafe on Main Island, and that uh, is what conjured up the name The Accidental Curator for this podcast, which I started up during the pandemic because my gallery was closed. And uh, occasionally I do take my equipment over there and uh, record podcasts, and I had an intention to do that recently. I went over uh, a week or so ago. Uh, with eager anticipation of making episode 11 on Main Island. But uh, we had a power outage, which uh, is also indicative of just some of the crazy weather we've been having uh, locally, regionally, globally. Uh, for us, it seems to be manifesting in cold, lengthy winter slash spring sprinter, I think they're calling it. And uh, yeah, I had a power outage and that just completely nuked the one day I'd set aside to do the podcast before I reopened my gallery on on the Friday. I went over on a Wednesday, reopened on a Friday. So, but here I am. Anyway, long story short, um, I'm blathering on because I'm heavily caffeinated, which seems to be fairly typical of my my days. I'm going to read a short story for you today. It's um, something I wrote several years ago, and it's about... Um, time I spent in Greece, and specifically in this case, the short story is about uh, my time in Athens in November of 1973 when I was a young, long-haired kid. And uh, there was a student rebellion against the government, which ultimately led to the overthrow of the authoritarian uh, dictatorship of General George Papadopoulos. Um, it's called Tonight Fascism Will Die, or in Greek, apopse tapatene o fascismos. Have a listen. I hope you enjoy it. Kathy and I are getting kind of low on cash, so we're thinking of going to Israel to work on a kibbutz, said Keith. Yeah, we get free room and board if we work on one of their farms. It's kind of like a commune or something. It's Saturday, November 10th, 1973, and I am in Athens with my two friends and traveling companions, Keith and Kathy, who have just decided to go to Israel to extend their overseas trip by exchanging labor for food and a bed. Our round-the-world trip together has lasted barely two months, and we haven't even left Europe. Keith, that's kind of crazy, I said. Israel just had a big war with all her Arab neighbors barely two weeks ago. It's, it's pretty dangerous there right now, buddy. 
Thousands were killed, and you guys don't even know what you're getting into. I'm not sure if Keith and Kathy's motivation was genuinely to save money, or if their foray into a war zone was driven by Kathy's desire to separate her malleable boyfriend, Keith, away from his high school chum, myself, so she could have more one-on-one -on -one quality time with her guy. If so, it seemed like a fairly extreme money-saving solution or relationship-building exercise. In any event, I chose not to join them, preferring instead to go to Istanbul, according to my journal, and carry on with my global adventure. They left without fanfare or delay and were gone the following day, Sunday the 11th, flying off into Armageddon as I remained in Athens, 18 and alone. According to a journal entry from that day, though, their departure left me somewhat nonplussed. Said goodbyes to Keith and Kathy. Sorry to see them go, but I think I'll get more accomplished now. Lazed around playing chess and cards. Evidently, my ideas of accomplishment lacked a certain get-ahead quality, even then. I was staying at the new youth hostel number four, which was at number three Hamilton Street, 97B Petition District in downtown Athens, just a few short blocks away from the Polytechnion, which is the National Technical University, where a student uprising would explode within the next few days, resulting in much death, destruction, and ultimately the overthrow of dictator George Papadopoulos. I'm not sure if I should say that my days leading up to the revolution were blissfully unaware or admit that they were pathetically uninformed. I was completely oblivious to the political upheaval which was brewing in my neighborhood. My fellow travelers seemed unconcerned. The Athenians with whom we engaged were not discussing it, and I was preoccupied with my travel plans, petty concerns, and pleasures. On Monday, November the 12th, just three days before the students went on strike and occupied the university, I was busy assembling the illegal documents I would need, primarily fake student ID, to get discounts on my flight to Istanbul. From my journal, went to a crazy spot called Antonio's for fake student ID. My journal entries were often vague, as I have no recollection of why Antonio's was crazy. I guess my younger self thought it would be sufficient descriptive for my older self to remember and interpret. No. I was much more concerned about eating, drinking, playing cards and chess, and the cold showers we were experiencing due to the Arab oil embargo. Eat, play, drink. My own hedonistic version of Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Eat, Pray, Love. And perhaps the greatest example of my complete detachment from the political turmoil unfolding around me, my entry from Wednesday, November 14th, the day the students occupied the university. November 14th, Wednesday. When I don't write every day, I find I really forget what's happened anyway. It's kind of a drag, reading, sleeping, eating. My self-indulgent ennui was about to change. Student protest is not a new thing. Wikipedia lists 49 such demonstrations going all the way back to the University of Paris strike in 1229. My favorite being the Great Butter Rebellion at Harvard in 1766. Just for the name alone. Mr. President, we must do something about this Butter Rebellion. It's starting to spread. The late 60s and early 70s were a time of much student unrest. 1968 was particularly rebellious, 
with a worldwide escalation of demonstrations, sit-ins, riots, and revolutions taking place in well over 20 countries. These uprisings were mostly directed against military and bureaucratic elites, who countered with greater repression. This is exactly where Greek students of the Polytechnion found themselves in the fall of 1973. Greeks have been chafing under the repressive regime of the military junta since 1967. Known as the regime of the colonels, or just the dictatorship, leader Georgios Papadopoulos abolished civil rights, dissolved political parties, and exiled, imprisoned, and tortured politicians and citizens based on their political beliefs. An assassination attempt in 1968 and a student self-immolation by Costas Georgiakis in 1970 failed to change history. Despite further clampdowns on their rights and freedoms, and American support for the dictatorship, by late 1973, students in Athens were angry enough to make their move. On November 14, 1973, while I was evidently dealing with the hardship of endless reading, eating, and sleeping, the students of the Polytechnion, blocks from my bed at Hostel No. 4, decided to take their lives in their hands and occupy the university. On Thursday, November 15th, the second day of the occupation, thousands of citizens from Athens and the surrounding area headed towards the Polytechnion to support the students. A radio transmitter had been set up on campus demanding the restoration of democracy, acting as a magnet for the disaffected. Still unaware of the magnitude of events that were unfolding around me, I rose, ate breakfast, and decided to wander up 28th Octavio Street towards the American Express office, where I was expecting some mail. In those days, Amex was one of the only ways to receive snail mail while overseas. Within a few blocks of the hostel, it became apparent that something was going on. The streets became more and more crowded the closer I got to the university. Traffic was down to a trickle, or stopped altogether, and there was a sense of excitement and anticipation in the air. My first journal reference goes thus. Watched a demonstration. Very interesting. Not enough leaders, publicity, or organization. So... My one experience attending an anti-nuclear demonstration in Victoria some years prior had evidently made me an expert, or at least a critic, qualified to provide such astute political commentary. I do recall, on this day, being able to get fairly close to the barricaded gates of the Polytechnion. There were placards and protest signs stuck everywhere, while people milled around and the crowd swelled. I recall watching from the sidelines during the day as different groups allied with the students started to arrive. Third parties, such as the construction workers and farmers, joined the demonstration. And at one point, a large throng of suits showed up, which were reputed to be bankers and businessmen. By this point, I'd gleaned enough through conversations with some English-speaking protesters what the demonstration was about and what was at stake. As a young, long-haired, left-of-center traveler, my sympathies were definitely with the students. But as a non-resident, just learning in real time what was happening in front of me, I felt emotionally detached from the passions I was witnessing. I was a concerned spectator, a witness. It was fascinating and exciting, but I got hungry and I left, carrying on with my evening routine of exploration and the quest for food, friends, and fun.
I may have gone to the Placa, which was the entertainment district. Perhaps I climbed up the Acropolis or Philippapu Hill to watch the sunset. These details escape me and are not really germane to the story. I do know that my journey back to Hostel Number 4 at day's end took me once again past the Polytechnion, and what I am now referring to in my journal as the riot. Went back to the riot and got talking to a bunch of students, took a couple of dangerous pictures. Nighttime brings an edgy quality to the angry passions of young males. There was now a sense of lawlessness on the street, as the government had not, as yet, decided to respond. Lots of clenched fists and mass chants of Apopse tapatene o fascismos, which roughly translates to Tonight Fascism Will Die. Maybe the uprising was going to work. Maybe the demands for justice, freedom, civil rights, and democracy would prevail. Or maybe American Vice President Spiro Agnew would parachute naked into Syntagma Square, spewing more pro-junta drivel like the best thing to happen to Greece since Pericles ruled in ancient Athens. I know, I know the junta was installed at the height of the Cold War, during America's fight against communism, and Greece had fought a divisive civil war, pitting left versus right, in what is considered the first conflict of the Cold War. It's all very complex, but it could all be resolved so easily and amicably with the Bathgate solution, better leaders, publicity, and organization. I edged my way into the crowds of protesters and decided I would take a picture with my shitty little 1970s Kodak pocket instamatic camera and its weird little flash attachment. I stood out like a sore thumb with my long strawberry blonde hair, patched jeans, foreign culture coat, and large logging boots which had had their spikes removed, a remnant of my brief career as a tree spacer with Macmillan Blodell. When the protesters saw that I was a foreigner with a camera, they encouraged their compatriots to sit on the street so I could get a better shot of their protest and tell the world what was happening in their country. At the same time, I was told that what I was doing was dangerous and that there were secret police keeping an eye on the protesters and would not think kindly of someone recording it, and even worse, being mistaken for an American. From my journal, God asked if I was an American, never say yes, even if you are. Given American support for this unpopular regime and considering where I was standing, this was definitely not an auspicious time and place to admit to being an American. I flashed the Canadian flag sewn onto my day satchel and apologized to prove I was Canadian and escaped the wrath of the mob. Friday, November 16th. Morning arrived. The uprising had not yet coalesced into revolution and Papadopoulos was still in power. For we hostelers, there was really nothing to do but go about our day. None of us knew what the final outcome would be, although it seemed likely that there could be only one of two possible outcomes. The students would prevail and democracy would be restored, or they would be crushed and the regime would cling to power. The final outcome would prove to be much more Machiavellian in the complex calculus of dictatorships and great power politics. Despite being less than a kilometre from the uprising, Hostel Number 4 was still a place of relative calm. This could not be said of the rest of Athens. Sometime during the day, a proclamation was announced that the students intended to bring down the junta. Demonstrations and attacks against neighbouring ministries took place. 
Central roads closed, fires erupted, and Molotov cocktails were thrown in Athens for the first time. The junta decided to reply firmly and repress the rebellion. Battle lines were drawn. As evening descended, I met two friends, Betty and Anne, from a nearby hostel who wanted to walk to the placa for dinner. A little moussaka, retsina, and music sounded good. It was Friday night after all, and thus far we had not witnessed or experienced anything that gave us pause in our normal activities. The most direct route would take us, once again, past the Polytechnion, ground zero for the revolution. There was little or no automobile traffic, so we were able to walk on the streets on our way to Ammonia Square. Crowds of Athenians, students and otherwise, milled about. There was garbage in the streets, as one might find after a parade or festival. As foreigners, we were certainly getting observed, but no one seemed hostile, and there was, at this point, no government presence, no police or military in sight. This was soon to change. We got to Ammonia without incident and veered left onto Stadio on our way to Syntagma Square, which is a few short blocks from the Placa. Suddenly, halfway up Stadio Street, the crowd on the sidewalk started running toward us. Behind them was a phalanx of policemen with clubs charging down the street, beating pedestrians indiscriminately. We could see their clubs rising and falling on the backs and heads of those that were fleeing towards us. It took a moment to grasp what was going on. Moments before the mayhem reached us, I grabbed Betty and Anne and pulled them into a store, hoping to avoid being clubbed or run over by fleeing pedestrians. One of the young policemen rushed into the store after us, wielding a club over his head, as if to strike as we cowered on the floor. He screamed something unintelligible, then abruptly turned and left and ran to rejoin his comrades. We gathered ourselves and exited the store to find broken windows and people clutching their bruised and bloodied heads, while some tended to the injured. We were all shaken by this new violent display. Not wanting to follow in the same direction the police had taken, we carried on with our original plan to head to the Placa, find a taverna, have a drink, and gain insight into what was going on. No more leisurely Friday night stroll. People ran furtively to their altered destinations, or gathered on street corners deep in conversation while casting fearful glances. It was around this time that we began to hear the first gunshots, echoing in the distance. Tonight is the night of the revolution, said Dimitri, owner of the little taverna that we like to frequent. I suggest you return to your hostel. It is going to get too dangerous on the streets for you. The police are out now beating people and taking some away. We think Papadopoulos will send in the military. Already there is shooting, but we don't know who is shooting who. How should we get back, I asked. The Polytechnion is directly between us and the hostel. Don't go back the way you came, he said. You will have to make a big detour. We headed out, unsure of our route, but knowing that we had to give the university a wide berth. It seemed wise to avoid major routes, so we chose a series of narrow streets, which hugged the slopes of Lycabettus Hill. We headed roughly northeast to avoid the turmoil, asking people for directions and guidance as we went. It's about 11 p.m. now, and gunfire, including automatic fire, was being heard more frequently. Apparently the regime had sent snipers into the city near the Polytechnion to assassinate students. We were running into other people who were fleeing the conflict, 
some of which were suffering from tear gas exposure. Here is some Vaseline for your eyes, said one Athenian we encountered. It will protect you from the tear gas. We applied it as directed and carried on. Betty and Anne were staying at a different hostel than myself, several blocks farther away from the university. So I decided to get them home safely before I returned to number four. After what seemed like an extremely long, arduous and nerve wracking detour through the side streets and back alleys of Athens, we arrived safely at their hostel, hugged and said our goodbyes. From here, it seemed worth the risk to take the main road, Petition, back to hostel number four. It is now Saturday the 17th, around 1 a.m. Petition was unrecognizable. City transit buses had been hijacked and overturned all along the main drag, acting, I imagine, as barriers to the anticipated military assault and as protection against police attacks, which were now ongoing. Students would run from behind, overturn buses to hurl rocks and Molotov cocktails, and then retreat to the relative safety of the barricade. Often it was not enough, as small groups of police would corner a student or a citizen and beat them mercilessly and then drag them off to awaiting police vans. My route back to hostel number four was not far, but it was an obstacle course of broken glass, small fires, and avoiding the wrath of the police. By the time I got back to the hostel, most of the other inhabitants had returned and were either sitting together in the common areas with worried, fearful looks, or had ascended to the roof for a better view of the mayhem on the streets below. I decided to join the rooftop crowd. There are around 10 or 15 of us on the slippery red tile roof, clinging to our positions so we could witness the fight between the protesters and the police and avoid plunging to the street below. One fellow had a professional looking Nikon camera and was taking night photos, which required no flash. Whereas I, with my cheap Kodak pocket Instamatic, decided to try my hand at a night shot using my flash and perhaps two or three hundred feet. I don't know if my flash alerted the sniper to our presence, but within minutes, a hail of bullets passed within inches of our heads. I could have reached up and caught one. Everybody let out a collective fuck and rolled, slithered, and crawled as fast as, we hum as fast was as humanly possible off the roof and back into the relative safety of the hostel. Some of the women were in tears, and everybody was agitated, fearful, and excited. No one knew if the sniper missed intentionally or if we had just dodged a bullet. But the adrenaline was pumping. It was two or three in the morning, and sleep was not an option. And then the military moved in. I remember the distant rumble. You could hear the tanks and military vehicles coming down Petition Street for many blocks away. I and several others made our way to the second floor balcony on Hamilton Street, where we had a good view of Petition to see what was in store for the protesters. Within minutes, a giant rumbling AMX-30 tank came into view heading towards the Polytechnion. Whichever buses and cars the tank could not push aside with its massive weight and bulk, it drove over and crushed. On top of each tank was a soldier, with a pivoting machine gun firing indiscriminately. Big chunks of plaster flung off the buildings across from us as the bullets whizzed. From my journal, Saturday, November 17th. Late at night, most people are awake. 
The sound of guns is so loud and close it's deafening. The tank carried on down 28th Octobrius, making its way inexorably to the gates of the Polytechnion, bringing down the main steel entrance to the campus, to which people were clinging. At this point, Prime Minister Spiros Marcazinis had to request that Papadopoulos reimpose martial law. A radio station had been constructed on campus, which repeatedly implored Athenians to join their struggle. As the military entered the campus, a student could be heard desperately asking the soldiers, whom he calls brothers in arms, surrounding the building complex to disobey the military orders and not to fight brothers protesting. The voice carries on to an emotional pitch, reciting the lyrics of the Greek national anthem until the tank enters the yard, at which time the transmission ceases. The uprising has been crushed. There are some disputes over the size of the military operation and the number of people killed. Wikipedia notes, an official investigation recorded casualties amounting to 24 civilians killed outside Athens Polytechniku campus. The records of the trials held following the collapse of the junta document the circumstances of the deaths of many civilians during the uprising. The Athenians I spoke with said that up to 200 had been killed. From my journal. Daytime. The tanks and armored cars arrive today. It's a real freakout. The papers say four dead, the people say 200. Who knows? Not us. I wouldn't walk out in the streets to look. Started work today. 50 drac and a bed. The manager is a real ass. He pinches pennies and is never satisfied. 50 drachmas and a bed for janitorial work at the hostel. I left this tidbit in as a nod to how rapidly life returns to the commonplace. Soldiers are still shooting at people blocks from where I am. Yet toilets still need to be cleaned, beds made, and floors washed. And I'm angry with my cheap man manager. Atrocities are being committed. Tragedy is unfolding. Yet interpersonal exchanges still provide fodder for comedy. Would you like some more pita with your tzatziki? A little more journal. Today they started curfew after four o'clock. No food till Monday, so we shop now. Prices raised, streets deserted, some windows smashed. Came back to tear gas after breakfast. Tonight the streets are dead. Scattered shots with occasional machine gun bursts. Some people got stuck across town after curfew. Good luck. In the days following the military clampdown, it looked like the junta had won. The rebels had been killed, injured, captured, or had fled. The rest of the city was on edge, and we were all subject to a 7 p.m. curfew. I was still trying to arrange passage to Istanbul in this new restrictive environment. It's scary downtown. At 6, the people are all hurrying home. Just made it, but I can't get comfortable here. And then, on November 25th, the day before I was scheduled to fly to Istanbul, in what seemed at that time to be sweet poetic justice, Colonel Georgios Papadopoulos, the dictator, was overthrown in a coup d'etat. On the surface, to an outsider like myself, it appeared to be cause for celebration. The student sacrifices had not been in vain. Their efforts had indeed led to the fall of this repressive regime. The truth, as it turned out, was much more complex and would take many twists and turns over the next seven months. I couldn't stay to find out. I flew to Istanbul the next morning.
denouement. One critical piece of this story, which was not revealed to me until many years later, was that Papadopoulos had actually been attempting to liberalize the regime in the late 60s and early 70s, prior to the student uprising. Many restrictions had been lifted, and the army's role significantly reduced. His attempts at gradual democratization had failed, however, and hardliners within the military were looking for a pretext to return the country to a more orthodox military dictatorship. The student uprisings gave Brigadier Dimitrios Ionadis a casus belli to oust Papadopoulos and replace him as the new strongman of the regime. Thus, the student revolt had an opposite effect. It led to even more repression and further suspension of rights and freedoms. But all was not lost. In the Machiavellian labyrinth of Greek politics, Ionades made a fatal miscalculation by staging an abortive coup against Archbishop Makarios, the president of Cyprus, in July 1974. This resulted in an invasion of Cyprus by Turkey, which subsequently caused the military regime to implode. These events ushered in the era of Metapoltevsi, which is Greek for regime change. Parliamentary democracy was restored, and the elections of 1974 were the first free elections held in a decade. And Keith and Kathy, in their Israeli kibbutz, in a war zone, they stayed several months and passed their time in peace and harmony. Lachaim. Thanks very much for uh, joining me today. Um, my name again is George Bathgate, and this is The Accidental Curator. And you've just listened to episode 11, Tonight Fascism Will Die. Just uh, a little story about my experience in Athens in November during the student uprising back in 1973. Um, I did want to make some comment about uh, this little music clip that I've chosen. I tried to find something Greek. I, I use GarageBand to do my recording, and they have a wonderful selection of uh, what they call loops. And uh, this last little piece that you're listening to was called uh, Tigris, and not exactly close to Greece, but uh, closer than uh, Alabama, let's say. And uh, I just liked, I, I liked that piece, actually. I thought it was quite sweet, and uh, it reminds me of the East, Far East, and uh, there's a lot of over overlap with music in that region. So nothing Greek, surprisingly, but uh, they did have Tigris. Um, hope you liked it. And um, yeah, so that's it for episode 11. Uh, if you're interested in future episodes, you can subscribe to this podcast. And if you'd like to leave a comment, that too would be great. Or you can share this link with someone you think may be interested. Uh, I will attempt to reach out uh, a little more frequently than I have with new episodes. However, I am beginning my busy season with the gallery uh, starting next week. So um, I might be out of commission for a few months. I just don't know. It depends on uh, motivation and time, these two factors. Anyway, please stay well, and um, I will be talking at you soon. Mm-hmm.